Could you open up to the book of Luke, chapter 6, please? We're going to look today at verses 12 through 26. So if you could just open up your Bible there, that would be great. Do you mind if I pray one more time? I know I've been praying a lot. I need God's help. My, t- my mouth got away from me the first service a lot. And I need to, need to ask him to tone it down. So let's pray. I need it to be harnessed a little bit. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that I'll speak your truth when I need to be quiet. Help me be quiet when I need to talk. Help me to say it. I do pray, God, that when we read your Bible, here's my biggest prayer, that we would see that this is your truth. This isn't opinions. This isn't uh, suggestions. It's truth. And uh, we ask that, I ask that we would take it as such. Thanks, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do want to begin with an apology, and it's a very truthful and honest apology. Last week was Memorial Day weekend. I didn't mention anything about soldiers. I didn't mention about anybody that died or veterans. I want to ask your apology because sometimes it seems as if I and maybe sometimes Jared don't care about our country. I love our country. I love it. My grandfather fought in Germany in World War I. My dad was an MP. And the freedoms we have, I have seen countries. I've been in Russia for a year. The freedoms we have are absolutely amazing. I love our country. So that's not why I, I, I just didn't think about it, so forgive me. What's funny, though, I was, I was looking at what I preached about last week. And I, last week we talked about how some people don't like change and they expect things to always be as they are. And when they aren't always, always as they are, they get more upset about not having things as they are than what's actually taking place. And I try to, what I try to do is I try to exalt Jesus above our country, I think he's more important. That's why I do that sometimes. Because I really believe the kingdom of God is what we live for. And so some, when, I, when I saw last week what we talked about, and it's almost sometimes when I say stuff, everything I say is forgotten, but what doesn't take place is remembered. And it kind of frustrates me. It's as if, does, do I, am I listened to? Is preaching just information, or is it just wind? And it frustrates me because my job is I really want to be different. I want all of us to be different, and I want all of us to change. And I don't know if some people, I don't know, is that what church is? Is church coming to change or do things that we've, to keep a tradition we've always been doing? And I, if that's what it is, I can't do it. But I got to tell you, I, I think Jesus is everything, and so I'm going to talk about Jesus, and I exalt Jesus, and But sometimes the words he says are so hard. Today, the next three weeks are going to be tough. They're tough. And so my question for you is when you come, what do you come for? Do you come to listen to what he has to say out of his Bible? Or do you come for feeling? Actually, before before Pastor Jared was here, often Pastor Josh said, my job as a worship pastor is to make people feel good. I said, Josh, you believe that? He goes, I don't believe that, but I, I know that's what I'm asked to do. 
So, today we're going to look at Luke 6, 12 through 26. This uh, series is going to be called Follow Me. It's going to be about what it means to be a disciple. This, uh, today we're going to take part one, and the title is A New Kind of Life. That's going to be our theme, is A New Kind of Life. So look at verse 12 with me. It says, In these days uh, he went out to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you, this is a tough one, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So this is what we're going to look at. This is a hard passage. These are some weird, strange, just different kind of statements that you don't hear often. And so we need to kind of understand it. But to get context, we begin up in the mountain. In verse 12, it says, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. He was uh, in the area of Capernaum. Capernaum's right on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is in a, it's like in a bowl. It's the bottom of a bowl. And outside of the Sea of Galilee are these ridges, which they call mountains. They go up pretty steeply. And this is where Jesus was praying. He needed to talk to his dad. He needed to get direction. Because Jesus was going to start something new. He was going to start something that he said the gates of hell won't be able to ever destroy. He's going to start something that is going to replace what Israel tried to do, which is to bring glory to God. Now, instead of 12 tribes, he's looking for 12 apostles to start what's called the church. The church is an amazing thing. The church is God's witness on earth. 
And so to do it right, he went to his father, so he made sure those he chose were the right ones. So who are the apostles? Are they superheroes, special saints? He's talking to a person about six years ago, and he believed that there's classes of Christians. You have saints, and then you have the apostles. Like they're the superheroes, they're the top echelon, and we just are the peons. Is that what the apostles were? The apostles are special because if you read Revelations 21, the New Jerusalem has 12 gates and over the gates are the 12 tribes. And the wall has 12 foundation stones, which are the 12 apostles. So they are important, but are they important because they're special? No, they're important because Jesus chose them. He prayed and he chose 12 men chose 12 men to be apostles. This word apostle means authorized. Jesus put a stamp of approval on them that they are going to be the ones that are going to carry on what he first started. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. They are authorized and they were sent. Sent out to represent him. In a way, they are our examples. The apostles are the ones that Jesus put a stamp of approval on so we could follow them. So what, what were they like? Just to give you an idea, first of all, we said they were, they were authorized because they were chosen. It's not because of who they are, but it's because Christ chose them. They didn't appoint themselves. We live in an age where some churches self-appoint apostles. I'm an apostle. What does that mean? Did Jesus choose you? Did he come and talk to you? I think the apostles were the original 12. I think there's a gift of apostleship, but not apostles. Where these men just have rights and power like Paul and Peter used to. These are ordinary men. I think they were picked precisely because they're human like us. They were fishermen. They were... Well, you got Matthew. He was a guy that worked for the government and wasn't looked on too nobly. Then you have this guy named Judas the Zealot. A Zealot is a guy that hated the Roman government. I could imagine Matthew and Judas the Zealot talking over a campfire. Jesus probably had to split them up all the time. They were arguing all the time. You have this guy named Thomas. Thomas, was he never could believe anything. He's always asking questions, talking all the time. Thomas, just believe what Jesus said. Yeah, but I want to know. I want to I know. There's people like that in here. Because they are just like us. The second reason he chose them is not only were they ordinary, but what he did is he wanted them to be with him. Look at verse 12. Actually, it's 17. So after he chose this man, it said he came down. And then there's two words that need to be emphasized. He came down with them. There's so many times in the New Testament where the description of us of the 12 is that they are with him they are with him actually in when they would uh, in Jerusalem in Jewish tradition a rabbi would be chosen and you would follow that rabbi and become like that rabbi you'd just go everywhere with them this is different Jesus chose these men to be with him he wanted to be with them and it's in being with him is where they learned how to start the church. We often think, 
you know, the kind of person that's a good pastor or a good leader is a person who's just intelligent and can just study and really knows the words. I find that it's more the people who do and live a good life, who've got the character qualities. Somebody asked me once, I often I would... Uh, help some guys that want to go into pastorate and they would say what is the most important thing that helped you become a good pastor and I think about it seminary was helpful you only go to seminary a few years but you got to keep studying I think study tools are helpful but for me honestly you know what really helped me being the youngest of six kids with a great dad I learned how to love my sisters when they get in trouble by the cops I learned how to not get in fights with my brother when he'd steal my things. I'd learn how to make it through tough times with a big family. You didn't have a lot of money. I walked with my dad. My dad would take me out in the woods with his dog and just talk to me about important things. I can remember the talks we'd have watching the Cleveland Indians over a bowl of peanuts, and he'd ask me about my life, and he cared about me. To me, that's where you learn, and that's what's happening. They're walking with Jesus. They're with him. They go to camp with him. They go up to Jerusalem. They get to see him talk to beggars. They get to see him talk to lepers. They get to see him talk to women and kids. They see Jesus everywhere. That's what a disciple is. He's with him. And what you're going to see in a minute is that is what it is to be blessed, is to be with him. The third thing I would say, and this is kind of, this is a tough one, is verse 16. It says, in Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There are some people that claim to be followers that are not, but they look like it. There's a lot of people that have followed Jesus a long time, know the words, know the traditions, but don't have the Spirit of God in them. Jesus gives this parable. He goes, there's wheats and tares. A guy goes and he sows all this wheat. The enemy comes and sows these tares, and they start growing up together. He said, don't pull them out because you don't really know which one of the wheat or which ones are the tares until they reach maturity, when they start having fruit. The wheat will come off the true wheat, but the tares have nothing, no fruit. Then you pluck them. The implication is, is sometimes it takes a long time to see if a life is genuine. That's scary to me. And so the question is, are you really a follower? Your life will prove it out if you are. It says in 1 John 2.9, in the end times, there's going to be a lot of antichrist, meaning the spirit of false Christs. And the way you can tell them is they were with us, but they left us. That's how you can tell they left. The terrors, or what I would say traitors, they won't hang in there when it gets tough. They'll quit. So, Jesus, in verse 20, begins preaching to his disciples. What's interesting, from 18 and 19, you have all these people getting healed. And Matthew, when he had the Sermon on the Mount, people would come from all over. And he had compassion on them, and he'd just heal them. Jesus was just good, full of mercy. And his power, it says, came out from him and healed them all. But the point of this passage is verse 20. He looked at his disciples, and he began to teach them. So he takes these apostles, 
And this word disciples isn't just the apostles, but all those who are following them. Jesus begins teaching them. This is also considered the same thing as Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the first thing he's going to teach them are the two ways to live. The two ways that you can choose. And so if you want to know if you're a disciple, I want you to evaluate, because we're going to talk about three subjects. And he's going to talk about what it means when it comes to being rich, what it means when it comes to being hungry, and what it means to be about your reputation. But there's two ways to look at it. There's the old way and the new way. You can say it like this. This is a study of contrasts. Jesus is going to contrast blessings and woes, and he's going to give three topics, riches, hunger, and reputation. And what I'm going to ask you is, which one do you fit on? Because if you see you're the new life, basically verses, go ahead and hit it, it says verses 20 through 23 talk about blessed are you. Blessing means you are underneath the favor of God. His life is with you. And it keeps saying, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you when men hate you. This is a new way of life. And then you're going to have, he's going to talk about the old way of life, and he keeps using this phrase from 24 to 26, woe. Woe is a curse. Like, this is a bad thing. And it's basically, he's going to shout woes down on your old life, or the, or the typical life. By typical life, let's say you were born, you never met Christ, you never were born into a Christian family, this is how you would live. This is the course you would take. That's the typical or old life. And he categorizes it by the phrase, woe, meaning his life isn't with you. God isn't, has nothing to do with you. And if that be the case, what you're going to see is these words are kind of shocking. They're kind of strange. So ask yourself, where do you live? In the old life or the new life? So let's begin in verse 20 and 24. He's going to be dealing with the issue of riches or what you own. And he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. What does he mean by this? Because this is hard. And most of you, most of you, all of you, from an economic point of view, if you compare yourself with the rest of the world, you are rich. You are. So is that what he means? Your bank account? Is that what rich means? Is poor mean you don't have anything? What does he mean? Here's what I believe the issue is. The issue here is where does a person find their source of contentment? Where do they place their trust? On what they own and possess or God himself? That's really the issue. That's why in verse 24 he says, Woe to you who are rich, you've received your consolation. Your consolation is your comfort, your contentment. And so let's begin by talking about the typical life. The typical life when it comes to riches is they accumulate. I am considered rich because I have saved, I've accumulated enough to place faith in myself. 
since I have done it and I've worked hard and I've earned this, I don't really have pity on people who don't. It's kind of their fault. You can look at it like this. From the typical viewpoint, I need riches because riches and money is an insurance policy for a lack of faith. And it's also a replacement for prayer. Let me say that again. Money is an insurance policy for a lack of faith and a replacement or a substitution for prayer. What do I mean by that? A insurance policy, let's say I, I'm in bad shape. I need to be rescued. Man, if I don't trust God, I better have somebody who will take care of me. And if I have more money, the more I know, I can handle it. I can handle it. How about replacement for prayer? Why pray when you can buy those things you want? Why pray when you can be the source of your prayer? And the way you do that is through accumulating and hoarding money. It just, it's just the truth. So then what does a new life look like? The new life is this. I will be considered poor because my decisions with my career, am I going to go for a job that really is kind of unethical, but man, I make the money. I want to get that job where every time somebody calls me on the phone, I charge them $100 an hour. That's the job I want. Is that really fair and ethical? I don't know, but everybody else does that, and it makes a lot of money. You know, there's, that's the kind of job people go into. I, I picked a community, my decision with the community where I'm with those people that are, I just, you know, they have the boats, they have, they have the nice clothes, they, they have the swanky parties. My personal investment choices, maybe long-term, 30-year investments, and really I can't get to it, but boy, it's returning a great rate for me. You know, so you, I'm making my decisions based on personal choices or do I make choices that don't necessarily benefit me because I'm trusting God while I'm joining him in his work. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs is right in the middle of the Bible, right after Psalms chapter 3. Proverbs is a book of wisdom on how to chart what I would say a righteous course for your life. It's not necessarily a book of promises as much it's a book of forming habits that reward you, good habits that return back to you. In Proverbs chapter 3, starting verse 9, says something very interesting. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. So wealth isn't wrong. It's not bad. But with your wealth, honor the Lord. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your produce. First fruits. Let's say I had a field and I had all this wheat come up. I take that first 10% and I give it as an offering back to the Lord because he's blessed me. He gives you 90%. That's a pretty big percentage. And then he says, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The point of verse 10, I don't, give to get I and it's the point is if I give God will take care of me and he really will take care of me he sees can I trust him but now look at verse 25 to 28 
Do not be afraid of sudden terror, of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. Don't worry about it, because in a way, God has your back. He's who you place your faith in. Verse 26, for the Lord will be your confidence. He will keep your foot from being caught. Now look at verse 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those who it's due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. You know, the idea is here you see somebody, a friend or a neighbor, or somebody who's in deep need, but I can't give because I'm saving. I'm saving it. I can't help them out. And the reason I'm saving is because I need to kind of take care of myself, you know. What he's saying is if you really trust the Lord, you'll be generous. It's an issue of generosity. Not foolish investment, that's not what I'm saying, but generosity. Because you're living a new life. I want to, uh, I know I shouldn't do this, but a lot of people wonder the way pastors think. And so I'm going to let you into my brain for a second on an issue that is huge in our church. It's huge in every church. And I shouldn't talk about it because I shouldn't, but I'm going to. And it's the issue of, inside a pastor's mind when it comes to riches, specifically tithing in the church. Because you know pastors look at the bottom line every week and we are scared, to, we always are scared to death. And people get mad at us. we got to do something. Here's, I just want you to think about this. Just a line of reasoning, nothing more, nothing less. First question, who pays the bills at your house? Like phone, gas, electric? I do. You know, I do. I pay the food, gas, electric, mortgage. Who pays it? Well, you do. If you don't, you lose your house. You don't want your mortgage company foreclosing? Of course. Absolutely. Second question, who pays the bills at the church? Pays the minister. Minister means servant. Missionary. Benevolent offering. That's to take care of community and other people in need. And we have a lot of benevolence, a lot of it. And buildings, who takes care of the buildings where we can meet, we can offer opportunity for people to hear the gospel. Well, the answer is the church pays it. Exactly. So then the next question, who's the church? And the answer usually is, well, they are. They, they are. They do a lot. They are, do a lot of things in our country. They are the ones that are behind everything. They. And they pay for the church. So then you've got to take it one step further. Who are they? I'd often ask my brother-in-law that. He was always a conspiracy theorist. Who are they? Who is the Council of Foreign Relations? Who are they? I think there's that conspiracy theory in the church. Who are they? And I think this is the answer. Well, it's of course, it's the pastors and the old men. Is it? But the funny one with the pastors is the pastors who pay the bills at the church to pay themselves. So that's kind of an odd thing. Anyhow, let's continue on to number two. That's awfully quiet. Number two, riches, uh, a little nervous. No, riches. And then now the next thing he's going to deal with, this is a very odd part of the Beatitudes. It's an issue of hunger. He says... Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry. How could that be a blessing, that I'm hungry, I'm not eating? So if I really want to be godly, I, I don't eat? Some monks wouldn't eat. Is that what that means, i got to be a monk? Blessed are you who are, are hungry. And then it says, blessed are you who cry. 
So is a true Christian a sad person, always crying, never laughing, never happy? Man. But Jesus was the happiest man that ever lived, it said in Hebrews. So is Jesus breaking his own words here? Then it says in verse 25, Woe to you who are full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You know, this is tough because I was looking in the mirror this week when I was reading this, and I, I've been eating a lot lately. So have you. So does that mean we are in bad shape? Well, if you eat a lot, you're in bad shape, yes. But does that mean we are outside of God's favor? What does that really mean? Here's what I think it means. Here's the issue the heart of the issue. The issue is what really satisfies me. Where do I find my joy? What breaks my heart? I think this is the issue. What is it that gives my life meaning, pleasure, satisfaction? To the typical person, I think this is the answer. I think think typical people are easily pleased. They're easily pleased because they went out to Outback Steakhouse this weekend. That's enough for me, man. And the the momentary pleasures of my own hard work and worldly imagination, that's enough. If I watch the last X-Men movie and I talk about it with my friends, that's enough. That's all I need. That's good for me. Uh, You know, the Browns, Johnny Manziel, talking to my buddies about the Browns, they're going to be good this year. That's enough. That's enough. And then the next part about those, woe, those who laugh, I'm just too busy to care about my faults and your pain. So the reason I laugh, it's not a laughter of joy, it's a laughter of indifference. I don't care that the world's falling apart about me. I have everything I want. I'm happy, so forget you. I once told you I was at a campsite. I remember these guys, they're out, man, they were out motorcycle riding all day long. They came into their campsite. They made more fried chicken you'd ever see. They're swearing like crazy. They're drinking like crazy and just eating and 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 eating. Swearing and swearing and swearing. Is that is that life? I think for a lot of people that's life. And I think that's what he means by woe to you who are full now, who really don't care except for your own pleasure. So what's the new kind of living? New kind of living is, I really understand that there's deeper things to me than just my stomach, the touch of skin, what I see. And, and when my life is new, I want to start, I want to live in a world as God wants the world to live, where there's real joy, real harmony, real peace. And then as I look across the world, I see all kind of brokenness, and that should cause me to weep, to mourn, because most of that brokenness is because of me. There's a difference. I was talking with somebody yesterday. It was, it was really a fascinating conversation. And he doesn't mind that I share this conversation. We're talking about how do you teach your kids about the birds and the bees? And I'll even say the word sex. I know you don't say it behind a pulpit, but how do you teach your son about sex? And he said, I'm trying to explain it to him. I showed him the diagrams and everything. He goes, oh, 
You do that, Dad? You like that? He said, yeah, I do. How? How? I don't understand. He said, you, I know, and he's talking to his son. He said his son lo loves food. He goes, imagine you haven't eaten for two days. You go in the house, and there's a stack of, there's a stack of hamburgers. And there's this, all kind of candy and chocolate and ice cream. After two days of not eating, what would that be like to just see that table? He goes, oh, I'd want that. He goes, that's what I, sex is like. Somebody the opposite sex. He goes, I don't understand that. I, I know, I don't understand that. I don't want to explain that to you. To me, when I say your life is spiritual, and that's where real satisfaction, if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you won't get that. You won't understand that. Like the kid doesn't understand sex. You won't understand that. But when the Spirit of God enters you, you know. You begin understanding this world is just a shadow land. Every time I get what I want, it doesn't satisfy. That's what C.S. Lewis called this, the shadow land. It's really not satisfying. But when God enters into it, when he's with me, it's great. It's great. So the question for you as you evaluate, which land do you live in? Really, I mean really live in. Is... Uh, and I'm not saying having a truck and shooting deer isn't fun. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's bad, but is that enough? C.S. Lewis put it like this. I, I love this one. You probably heard this. He goes, a lot of us, we, we aren't, we are too, we are far too easily pleased. We are like the little boy who's playing with mud pies and his mom and dad say, Johnny, we're going to go to the beach have a great time on the beach, but he's too consumed with his mud pies to realize he can enjoy the beach. We are far too easily pleased with small little pleasures like movies and sex and drinking when he has so much more for us. We are far too easily pleased. So that's hunger, and I think that's what hunger's talking about there. And so the third one is reputation. This is a tough one. Listen to uh, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you, and they revile you, and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. The, the reason why they hate you, and they exclude you, and they revile you, and spurn you, is because your association with the Son of Man. That's where your identity is. Your identity is in the Son of Man. And by having your identity in the Son of Man, people don't want you around. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified in Christ, so I no longer live. Meaning, my old identity, I, it's dead, because Christ lives in me. He's alive in me, and now the life I live, I live in the faith of the Son of God. Meaning, I want to do what he wants me to do. And the reason I do is because he loves me. How do I know he loves me? He died for me. So, the implication is mine now, my identity is in Christ. But what's, what's hard is as I live that identity out, people don't like it. They just don't like it. Either they don't, I don't laugh like I used to laugh, I don't have the same desires that they have, or they just don't understand me. And so they exclude me. I'll just give you a perfect illustration of this. And somebody says, why do we always talk about this topic? It's because it's slammed in our face. That's why we talk about this topic. And that topic is another Christian artist became 
a homosexual man came out. He was famous, I guess. Was the name, what's the name of the group, Ginger? Is it Everyday Sunday? And his name's Trey. I've never listened to him, but apparently he's, he was really uh, a popular Christian artist. And he came out, he left his wife of seven years, his two kids of seven years, and said, now I'm going to adopt a homosexual lifestyle. And he gets interviewed on The View, of all places. Like, The View, really? Like, it's that important that you got to go to The View with people that are really wise and like Joy Behar, wow, she's smart. You know, you leave, this, you leave this church family that we have convictions, not because we're jerks, but we really believe this word is true. We really do. But if I say that, he said in his statement, there's a lot of false teachers out there teaching that homosexuality is wrong. So in a sense, he would be calling me a false teacher. And, you know, like Joy Behar and this, that's so Raven girl thought, oh, you're so right. The world just sucks into that. It sucks into that. And there is this, now, because I believe that homosexuality is not God's design. If I say that, people say I'm a hater. They exclude me. They hate me. If I say that I think that homosexuality is not, it's not bringing health to a society. People think I'm crazy. It's funny, there's this guy, he, uh, he had homosexual tendencies. But he knew he was identified in Christ. So what he did is he said, I'm going to remain celibate. Even though I have homosexual tendencies. But I'm not going to call myself homosexual, but I will remain pure. He started meeting with this girl, and they became great friends. And he, they started falling in love, and they got married. And he said, he said to this guy who was, he's counseling with, he said, is it wrong that she is the only woman in the world I'm attracted to? You know what's bizarre is that we are in such a perverse society, we think a man is a man when he's attracted to any kind of girl. That's, that's wrong. What is right is when you're attracted to your spouse and your spouse alone. What's wrong with that? It's, it's, we're so messed up. I would even, like, I, I really believe this, this whole movement to homosexuality. They like to say there's a war on women. You know what the biggest war on women is? Is that a child doesn't need a mom. It's crazy to me. How do you leave your wife and your two kids? Because I'm sexually attracted. Why does sex, seriously, why does sex identify us now? Why don't we identify with who we belong to? That's, uh, that's all I'll say. I'm sorry. It just, I'm not, I have compassion for people in that position. But I'll, I'll even take it one step further. Because I'm attracted to somebody sexually, does that mean I have the right to be with them? No. We need to be identified with Christ and let him form our appetite, form our desires. Because outside of him, typically, here's what we are typically. This is Micah 2.11. This is how the, the implication is, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did the false prophets. Here's Mike, he's talking about the false prophets. And he said, if a man should go about 
and utter wind and lies. That means utter words that have no substance. I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He's preaching prosperity, joy, and just, just enjoy life. Don't worry about if it's right or wrong. He would be the preacher for this people. People love to hear that. They love to have their desires confirmed and supported. But it's wind. It's wind. Every time you hear the preacher preaches wind in the Old Testament, the idea is the words are like light and they have no return. But a, root, a true prophet's word, it's heavy. Oh, it's worthy. But people don't like it. So I'll ask you this question on these three items. When it comes to riches, when it comes to hunger, when it comes to reputation, are you typical? Or are you starting to become new? You see you're changing. Like, do you really believe he became sin for us so we could be righteousness? That's what that means. We are now righteous. It's funny, yesterday... And I'll close with this. And yesterday, all of you probably have heard, and if you're not a sports fan, you still probably heard of Muhammad Ali. You all know Muhammad Ali died. And if you ever listen to the sports radio station, it is as if a god died. A god. Even a president said he was the greatest Period. As if I'm not allowed to argue with that. He was the greatest, so period. And, be, and when, when the president says that or when the majority of talk radio people say that, we all are supposed to say, oh, yes, you're right. Yes, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. You said period, so it's done. That's how the world operates. There's this, we shout it down. And we all agree. What's weird is some of these radio talk show hosts, they're usually they're usually like really sarcastic and they swear, but boy, now Muhammad Ali's dead. They're somber and serious. But they never tell you that he used to be a Nation of Islam follower and Malcolm X. Do you know anything about Malcolm X? White people are the devil. You believe that for a while. He left the Bible, became a Muslim. Do you know he's married four times? But you don't say that because people become gods in our society. Jesus says in John... 5, 44, and 43. You know what? You guys go ahead and you say great things about each other, but I don't accept your praise because you don't say those kind of things about God. What does it mean he's the greatest? Remember, you know, one time, it's one of my favorite jokes. This is, this is uh, you probably heard it before, but when Muhammad Ali was about 23 or 24, he's flying an airplane. He's on the airplane. He didn't put on his seatbelt. The stewardess said, put on your seatbelt. Science says, put on seatbelt. Muhammad Ali say, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The stewardess looked at him and goes, Superman don't need no airplane to fly either. Put on a seatbelt. So you have all these things, and I, I have to be honest with you, he is a fascinating guy. I mean, he's fascinating. He's, he really is. He was a great fighter. He said funny things. He said rude things. I got to meet him in 1989. My brother worked for this thing called Cleveland Athlete in Cleveland, Ohio. as a journal, and he helped set up this big convention. 
And he said, Chris, I'll let you in early, and Muhammad Ali will be in there. I'll introduce him to you. Now, Muhammad Ali's sitting there, and he had Parkinson's, and he could, wouldn't, could barely write, could barely look at you, and could barely talk. That's the greatest? Look at Luke 6. Look at verse 23. It says, if you are joining the side of the new life, it says rejoice. Especially rejoice when people don't speak well of you or you're not necessarily popular or things are going your way. Rejoice and leap, leap for joy. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. It's great. If you have the Muhammad Ali life or the old life, Here's the truth. Go to this slide. This is as good as it gets. That's it. He gets maybe 20 years of saying he's the greatest. The last 25 years of his life, he's Parkinson's. Now he's dead. He doesn't have a savior. I mean, man, it was great life. What does it get him? What does it get him? It's funny, Wanda, yesterday, we were talking about Terry. And I'll tell you what, it, and Wanda, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but you can send your grandson on me. He'll tear me up. But when I was, I was in, your, your husband, he fought a hard battle last 10 years of his life. It was hard. But I, Wanda let me in on the last day of his life. And it was amazing to see a guy who loved his wife, was proud of his church, respected his pastor, but was excited to see his God. Like he was excited to see Jesus. If I say Terry Long, I don't know if many of you know him. Actually, wasn't Terry one of the first college players from Kent City? He's one of the first college football players, but I don't know if you go to the sports radio show, they won't know Terry Long. But you're going to know Terry Long. You're going to get to know Terry. And he is going to be an amazing spectacle to behold. Because he's going to be wearing the righteousness of Christ. But here's the, do you believe all this stuff? If you believe this stuff, your life will change. If you don't, you'll just have a typical life. And this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. Yeah, but I got a cabin in the got a cabin on the lake. It's as good as it gets. I got an RV. I can travel around the United States. It's as good as it gets. Is it really that good? Let's pray, Father. I thank you for the scripture. I just pray that these words would uh, haunt us, help us, and God. I pray that uh, they'll help us see Christ for who He is. And if we're going to be disciples, help us to live like disciples. Father, we love you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.